Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, a post week two. In the National Football League, Peter King podcast. We're going to be joined uh, in a few minutes by Rich Eisen of NFL Network. And I wanted to have Rich Eisen on this week because I thought he did a really good job interviewing Deion Sanders before the Colorado, Colorado State game the other day. And uh, I just think, I think Deion Sanders is the story in football right now. I think everybody who covers the NFL always looks at the NFL and says, well, this is the big league. and Nothing is as big as the NFL. Deion Sanders is as big or bigger uh, than the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to Rich Eisen. We'll talk about that. We'll go around the league with him. Uh, but Miles Simmons, I am um, I'm in your debt for joining me again this week. And I thought what might be fun for us, we'll go over a lot of things. In the first part of the pod, we're going to go over um, the top teams in the league through two weeks. Uh, I did that in my Football Morning in America column this week. And as always happens, um, there are going to be some interesting disagreements. We're going to talk a little bit about Micah Parsons, who I had the audacity in my column this week to compare him to Lawrence Taylor. We'll discuss that. We'll get to Rich Eisen. And then the second half of the pod, we're going to get to some of the more unusual stories of this season so far in the NFL. One is a guy who I always mispronounce, Puka Nakua, a receiver for the Rams who was the 177th pick in the draft this year. And Sean McVay has made him I don't know if you say he's made him a sensation, but holy crap. Matthew Stafford has targeted him 35 times in two games. So he's an interesting story. We're going to talk about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. A huge surprise, at least to me. Uh, And uh, I think Baker Mayfield has enjoyed needling me a little bit over this. Uh, and then we're going to get to the Atlanta Falcons, talk a little bit about the Falcons. I had a good conversation with their coach, Arthur Smith, on Sunday. We'll relay some of that. But, Miles, um, happy week three to you. And I, I guess I would just start off by saying, you think there's any doubt right now that after 120 minutes of football, the Dallas Cowboys are the best team in football? 
The only team that I could come up with that I would disagree with you on it would be the San Francisco 49ers. But I mean, the way that Dallas has gone out and been dominant these first two weeks, I mean, how how can you disagree? And now look, the Giants looked awful in week one. They looked awful for the first half of week two. And yeah, the Jets don't have Aaron Rodgers either, but I think when you're talking about those situations, you still have to go out there and beat the team, right? I mean, we saw last week in week one, the Bills ended up losing to the Aaron Rodgers-less Jets. So you still have to go out and execute. And I, I just feel like the way that they have been able to do that in these first two weeks, defensively led by that guy, Micah Parsons, there's no reason to say that they're not the best team in football because they're playing well offensively too. I think what is interesting about the Cowboys, and let's get into the Cowboys a little bit right now. When I when I rated my top 10 teams in football uh, through two weeks, I had Dallas number one. And, you know, I think what's really interesting to watch the Cowboys right now, and I think Dak Prescott said it at his post-game press conference after the win, the 30-10 to 10 win over the New York Jets, and he's, he talked about his footwork. And I thought that was really interesting because his whole point was Mike McCarthy going back to the days of, and and look, I know this, when McCarthy was out of football for that year, I went and visited him in Green Bay, and he showed me his quarterback teaching tape. And he went all the way back to the beginning where he and the coaches in Kansas City were teaching Joe Montana footwork. Now, Joe Montana already had the footwork, uh, but in essence... It's something that they drilled into every quarterback he has ever coached. And he also showed me how in the early days, how Aaron Rodgers was really a little sloppy, but he got him to be great with his footwork so that every step had a purpose. And mm-hmm. right now you, you kind of sense that Dak Prescott feels the same way. It sounds like the footwork was an awful big part of his offseason, so he feels more comfortable. He's been highly efficient. I think the other thing you notice with the Cowboys is how fast they go, how much tempo they're using. I had heard in training camp this year that everybody who was watching him was saying, wow, this offense is going to be fast. They're going to have three to five to seven snaps more per game this year on offense than they had a year ago under Kellen Moore. And we'll see if that keeps up. But the one thing, Miles, that I think is is interesting, it's it's kind of the resuscitation of the reputation of Mike McCarthy. You know, because mm-hmm. late in Green Bay, he kind of got trashed in his year off. Everybody basically was like, hey, good riddance. And early in Dallas, I think Jerry Jones wanted him to run his offense. He wasn't crazy about... Uh, bringing in an offensive coordinator to design and run an offense because McCarthy wanted to be the sort of overarching head coach. But I think so far this year, McCarthy has shown his offense still works and works really, really well. Well, and, and that was one of the things that I thought could make the Cowboys better. When you have the head coach and he's an offensive minded head coach, 
And I, I think about this with Sean McVay, right? Because last year there was a game in Kansas City where he was not calling the plays. And he said he felt more disconnected from the game, more disconnected from the players. And I don't necessarily think that that was a really huge problem with Mike McCarthy. I mean, obviously the, the Cowboys won 12 games the last couple of years, right? So we're not talking about a team that was bad. But I just felt like if you go into the season and you have somebody who's a head coach and has called plays before and has been really in charge of that offensive operation, it could help the head coach and quarterback get better in partnership. And that in turn will help the team better. So I, I just, I see this, what they've done over the first couple of weeks with the offense. And then obviously with the defense playing extremely well, special teams playing well too. And it just feels like they are a bit more of a connected team. And I think that that can yeah. happen when the head coach is that much more involved, just that, you know, with the play calling and every single aspect of everything. And, and this seems to be working well so far for Dallas. And I think that when you have the head coach doing what he's doing, you have Dan Quinn now who's been there for a couple of years, right? And he understands exactly what the personnel does well. This is the kind of result that you can get. So Dallas has to keep it up. But I don't know that you could have asked for a better start to the season than the Cowboys have had right now. Let's talk about Micah Parsons for a moment. In my column, I wrote the following about Micah Parsons. By the way, I covered the Giants for four prime Lawrence Taylor seasons. Micah Parsons is the closest thing I've seen to Taylor in terms of being able to collapse the pocket with a bull rush and turn style a tackle with unblockable speed. And so that obviously um, prompted, I shouldn't say obviously, but that prompted a few responses via email to my column. Um, all of them, really all of them, uh, seven, eight uh, notes, all basically saying the same. You idiot, that's sacrilegious. Nobody compares to Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> And my response, which I'll take one of them and I'll respond to in my column next Monday, is just because Michael Jordan was born first, does that mean that Kobe Bryant can never challenge to eclipse Michael Jordan? Does that mean that, that LeBron James can never challenge to be better than Michael Jordan? It's just a categorical decision no one will be better than Michael Jordan. It reminds me a little bit of Joe Montana. Okay, I don't mm -hmm. care if football has played another 200 years. Joe Montana is the greatest quarterback of all time. Nothing's going to change my opinion. So then Tom Brady comes around, and he wins seven Super Bowls to Montana's four. He has a better winning percentage than Montana. He does this better, that better, whatever. I, whatever. If you still want to call Joe Montana the greatest quarterback of all time, you're welcome to. I know some people, me in the old days, used to say that Otto Graham's the best quarterback of all time. He played 10 seasons of professional football, won seven championships, and lost in the championship game the other three years. So mm -hmm. Otto Graham's pretty darn good too. But I would agree. you can have whatever opinion you want. But to say that, Micah Parsons is not in Lawrence Taylor's league is foolish. It's just foolish. I covered every game of Lawrence Taylor's for four prime seasons. I'm not saying I know Lawrence Taylor better than anybody on the planet. I don't. 
I am saying that I observed, you know, 40% of his prime years. And I know everything about what the Giants used for game plans, how they tried to get him free, everything like that. Belichick and Bill Parcells. So, so I, I've got a pretty good base of knowledge here. And when I watch Micah Parsons play, I see Lawrence Taylor. So I don't know. Give me your thoughts. Well, I think it's about as high compliment as you can ever pay to a defensive player. I mean, I am a little young to have watched Lawrence Taylor play, but I have, you know, you go on YouTube, you watch the highlights. If you love football like I do, you, you want to understand parts of the history of the game that you were not alive to see. So I have done that. I've read a Lawrence Taylor book, right? I, I, so I know what Lawrence Taylor means to the game and what he has meant from a defensive perspective. And we talk about Bill Belichick, right? And, you know, he talks about different guys or whatever. He is, he has always basically said, nobody can compares to Lawrence Taylor. But I think by that same token, when you see things with your own eyes and you've covered things as you did on a day-to-day basis, Peter, and you know what you saw, you can then look and say, okay, 30 years later, whatever it is, this is comparable. And it's not like you're just speaking out of turn when you say that, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you saw with your own eyes. So I think when you say something like that, as opposed to when I say something like that, because I have 10 years on doing this to your 40, like it, it's different. But when you say this guy reminds me of X, like there's just a, a base of knowledge that I think I am very much willing to respect. And, you know, if readers don't want to do that, that's their prerogative, but it's not like you don't know what the hell you're talking about when you're talking about football. So I don't know, people, you know, when Peter King says something about football, maybe we should just hang up and listen to use a sports radio <laughs> term. Miles, well, I appreciate that. But uh, let's, let's just, before we go to Rich Eisen, I want to go through my top five. Okay, so I got Dallas number one. I got San Francisco two, Philly three. I think they're almost an item. I think mm-hmm. Philadelphia, although Philadelphia hasn't played as well as it did in the playoffs last year, they're still a highly impressive group, uh, in my opinion. Uh, so I got Philadelphia three. I got Miami four. I love what I've seen in the Dolphins. And I have Kansas City five. Uh, my remaining top ten is Baltimore six. Buffalo 7, the Rams 8, Seattle 9, and Detroit and Tampa tied for 10. Um, But let's just, let's kind of zero in on the top five, Miles, and you tell me where you might have a disagreement. San Francisco 2, Philly 3, Miami 4, and Kansas City 5. Is that how you'd line them up, or where do you differ? You know what? I probably would. I mean, I guess that... The thing is, for me, it's sort of like a reputation thing. And that's not necessarily fair all the time. But I expect Kansas City will be the number one or number two seed, number three seed at worst in the AFC in this year. And one of the reasons why is their defense is as good as it usually gets toward the end of the season, but we're at the beginning of the season. And you saw Chris Jones come back and play against the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, he was dominant. And that's not something you expect when a guy misses all of training camp and you know, you're going into Jacksonville and you're playing 
in a stadium that's, you know, heat index of 100 degrees on the field. Like that, to me, that's extremely impressive. But yeah, Kansas City's got things that they need to work out offensively. But uh, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, we've seen Andy Reid for long enough. and We've seen Patrick Mahomes for long enough that we can believe that those things are going to get worked out, whether or not, you know, their, their receiving core is as good as it's been in the past or not, that that's fine. But I also love what Miami has done. And I think going on the road, beating the chargers at SoFi stadium in week one, where you have to come back and do that and make sure you get the defensive stops at the end. That was a huge win. And then to go to new England, which is always a tough place to play. I mean, the new England Patriots aren't the Brady Patriots anymore. They've still got one of the best head coaches that we've ever seen in the national football league. Right? So that's a big win to do that. And to get both of those back to back start the season. And now you get to go home. I, I, I love what Mike McDaniel is doing. I love that he brought in Vic Fangio to be that defensive coordinator early on in the off season. And I think those moves are paying off, but yeah, it's not necessarily great podcast fodder, but I, I do agree with the way that you've got these teams lined up right now. I think that they, they are the top five in football right now. You know what I found interesting, you know, as I was sitting there Sunday night and thinking, because basically some weeks it's obvious what are you going to lead the column with? And it was probably 10 o'clock Sunday night, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And I didn't have a lead to the column that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, when in doubt, have a list. And so my list, I was thinking about various things. I was, I almost did a list of, the NFL MVP through two weeks, but I thought it'd be silly. It's funny. One of my, one of the guys on my list of the top five or six, as crazy as it sounds, would have been Baker Mayfield, <laughs> you know, and Baker Mayfield. Yeah, we'll just see what sort we of, next week. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and, and in the future, but I mean, Baker Mayfield's been great for, for Tampa so far, yeah, but, nice. but I, I would, I, I was thinking when I decided I was going to do this, and I said, okay, let's take a shot at it. So I sat there and noodled for a minute. And I said, one, Dallas, two, San Francisco, three, Philly. And I said, hey, wait a second. Didn't before the season we say that far and away, the AFC is the best conference and they've got a lot more depth. They've got much better teams. And I said, how in the world can my top three teams after two weeks, has it changed that much? All be NFC teams. But, you know, it's like Bill Parcells always used to say, all I can do is go by what I see. And what I've mm-hmm. seen so far, uh, to me, San Francisco and Philadelphia, if you want to have Philly second, San Francisco third, that's fine with me. But those are the next two best teams. I'll just say one thing about each team. San Francisco interests me so much because do you remember, uh, you know, almost a year ago when they traded for uh, Christian McCaffrey? And I think everybody thought, well, geez, good trade. They traded a two, a three, a four, and a five for Christian McCaffrey. That was a lot, especially for a guy who'd been hurt a lot. And what's been so interesting is I think now – He's played like is it 24 straight games or something like that. He's played 
a lot of consecutive games now without being hurt. And as long as he stays upright, I'll tell you, I think the 49ers have the best weaponry, and that is without having right now a healthy tight end because I just don't think George Kittle's healthy. I don't know if he's going to be totally healthy this year. So I I love uh, the offensive weapons they have. And then when I look at Philadelphia, I say, you know, you're allowed to struggle a little bit on offense when you have a defensive front that is as powerful and as young and as foreboding as the Eagles have. So I think Jalen Carter obviously has been terrific early. And I think both of those teams have the potential to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl. But that's the weird thing. You know, the the power conference now, you have to say, because of how much you question Buffalo, how much you probably question Jacksonville. And we probably won't question Kansas City forever, but we're kind of questioning them now. Um, but I, I just now look at the NFC as at least in the middle to late September as the power conference. It's interesting because, I mean, we thought that the three teams that we're talking about, though, at the top of the NFC, I mean, that they would be in some form or fashion, the one, the two, and the five seed, right? Whether it's San Francisco on top, the Cowboys on top, or the Eagles on top. And then, of course, because the Eagles and um, Dallas are in the same division, one of them would then be the five seed. I I think that that's still going to be the case um, as we sit here, you know, in September and it's September 18th as we're recording this. So I, I don't think that that's going to change throughout the course of the season, but what I, I don't know if I'm surprised by this or if it's just one of those observations that kind of makes sense in some way, when you look at the Eagles and the fact that their passing offense just has not been what it was, you know, last year, there's, there's something to the fact that they do have two new coordinators, right? Sean Desai is doing a great job so far with that defense. Yeah. And I thought that the continuity of having Brian Johnson go from quarterbacks coach to offensive coordinator would mean that things would be pretty smooth in terms of the transition offensively. And with the run game, obviously it is, right? They are dominant in the run game, that offensive line. I love that drive that they had. Um, against the Vikings where it was basically all runs. I mean, that's an offensive lineman's absolute dream where you're just lining them up and say, okay, we're going to knock the hell out of you off the ball and we're just going to go down and you're not going to be able to stop us. That's fun to watch. So I think that, yeah, their passing game is not where they want it to be yet, but I think that it will be. And when you have a new coordinator, sometimes you just have to get into that rhythm and that timing of the way things should be lined up against everybody. And then, you know, when your opponent and all this different stuff, I, I think the Eagles are going to be fine. Whether they end up being the one, two, five seed, I don't know yet, but they will be one of those. Miles, as you speak about that, you know, what is very interesting. I just thought about this. Let's just say that the Cowboys and the Eagles each finish 13 and four. I don't know, whatever. Uh, let's say they're, 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 you know, two of the real power teams in football. And so one of them has got to be the five seed. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what the line is going to be on the wild card game with, let's say, Dallas as the five seed 
at Atlanta. What's the line going to be? 13? I mean, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's not going to be good. It'll be outrageous. It'll be yeah. outrageous. Atlanta or Tampa or whoever it is. Uh, it, it just, it's amazing to see if, obviously, one of those two teams, Philadelphia or Dallas, is going to have to go on the road and will be, I would think, a borderline double-digit favorite. Who knows? I mean, it's a long season. But if it were to happen now, we would yes. say it would definitely be a double-digit favorite. Miles, yeah. let's just finish it off by, you know, right now Miami, I've been so impressed with Miami, even though, look, a lot of people might look at the New England game and say, oh, a little close for comfort. And to which I would respond, the Miami Dolphins have three very difficult road games on their schedule. A coast-to-coaster at the, the Chargers opening weekend. You come back, you get, you get back at 5 in the morning Monday Eastern time, maybe mm-hmm. 6 in the morning Eastern time. You're a wet dish rag for a couple days. And then, oh, you got to get ready to face the great and powerful Oz on the road in Foxborough. So they started the season 2-0 and against, oh, in the other tough road game, I would say, obviously, is at Buffalo. And, and, and look, they do play Kansas City, but Kansas City is in Frankfurt. I don't know what a neutral field means in that game, but I just, I think both teams have a road issue for that game because they're both traveling eight hours to get there. But, yes. but be all that as it may, the one really interesting thing that I think about the Dolphins right now, and I keep... When I watch them, I just say, I love watching this team play. You know why? I love watching a coach and quarterback who are in harmonic convergence. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think when I see Mike McDaniel and Tua Tonga And does Tua throw one of the prettiest, most catchable touch passes? Oh, my gosh. He throws a beautiful football. It's like he's he's throwing a six-month baby spiral. He's so careful with it. Oh, don't don't hurt the baby. Be careful with the baby. And the and the receiver catches it so gently and beautifully. And I just I just really love watching. If you give me my choice right now for one team, I just really like watching the Miami Dolphins play football. Okay, I you you're gonna take the Miami Dolphins, and I would get the the OG, I guess, of the derivative of the offense, which would be Kyle Shanahan, because I think that yeah. you know that he calls plays with Brock Purdy in pretty much harmony. One of the things that Purdy was talking about after yesterday's game was that the fact that he needs to stop overthrowing deep balls because Purdy could have had two, maybe three touchdowns if he just hits dudes in stride, which he acknowledged. So, but I I think you're onto something with Tua Tungavailoa. The touch that he has exhibited on the pass that you pointed out in your column to Carecraft at, toward the end of the first half, that one was amazing. And it, it reminded me a little bit of the throw that he had to Tyreek Hill in the go-ahead score um, in the fourth quarter last week against Los Angeles, where I, it was one of those throws where I'm like, how in the world did he fit that into that tight window in such a way yeah. that Tyreek Hill could catch it in the way that he, I mean, it just... 
it was one of those outstanding throws. He had another one down the left sideline uh, to Jalen Waddle that Waddle went up and caught, which was an outstanding catch, but it was an outstanding ball too. And it was one of those where you could say, yeah, he was just going at him in, in stride. So Tua's playing very well right now. You know, there are still some things that I would like to see him clean up. The one interception, that one wasn't very good. And then also when you fumble the snap, and he fumbled two snaps against the Chargers, too. It was on the first drive, but and they were able to clean that up. But you don't want to fumble the snap when you're in third down and you have a chance to close that game out right there. You know, you get a first down in the fourth quarter in a four-minute situation. You're basically trying to not give the ball back, and you can't fumble there. So those are little things, right? But little things sometimes can snowball into big things. But overall, you gotta have you gotta have good feelings about the way Tua Tagovailoa has started the 2023 season. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. So much fun to watch. And and look, I'm gonna get to Rich Eisen now. But the last point, I guess, I would make. It's so strange to think of Kansas City as number five right now, but they kind of played like number five. You know, not not. I would say they might have a... played like number two on offense. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Very good. <laughs> but but um, but I do think this. There are many times in football where you have a knee jerk reaction that this guy is such a good coach or this quarterback is such a good quarterback. They'll figure out the personnel losses. They'll be fine. They'll be good. Well, my theory on Kansas City right now is that Patrick Mahomes had a great number one in Tyreek Hill. I don't think he was really that emotional about losing him because Tyreek Hill is kind of like Stephon Diggs in that they can be a little bit gimme, gimme, gimme. Uh, and I think most quarterbacks say, I'll gimme, gimme, gimme to the guy who's most open. But, but so not only do you, do you lose him, but then you lose the guy who, even though he didn't replace Tyreek Hill, he knew that there was a guy who, was, who he could always count on to be exactly where he should be, and that's Juju Smith-Schuster. He lost him. So after a year which you lose uh, a home run maker all the time in Tyreek Hill, you then lose uh, a guy who's a different kind of receiver, but a guy who you rely on nonetheless in Juju Smith-Schuster. You lose another speed guy in McCole Hardman. So what you're trying to do is say, okay, I've got Sky Moore. He was a disappointment last year, but I'm going to bring him to every off-season workout. He's going to be Velcroed to me throughout this off-season, and that's great. But still, it's going to take some time. And look, I was happy to see that, for Sky Moore's sake, I was happy to see that he scored his first regular season touchdown as a professional in Jacksonville on Sunday. So... You know, the process is speeding up for him and all that. But I still think that if if people would say, well, geez, Kansas City has been outscored so far by Washington, by Indianapolis, uh, by Arizona. Yeah, that's true. And that's because 
it's going to take some time for Patrick Mahomes to find his uh, find his his feet with these uh, with his uh, new group of receivers. But anyway, gone on for a while about that. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I want to get into our conversation now with Rich Eisen. Uh, obviously, Rich Eisen, uh, tremendous with the NFL Network. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit, as, as you'll see, uh, about his relationship with Deion Sanders, uh, but also about his bizarre schedule this year. He's really, uh, this is, he's like the Kirk Herbstreet of NFL Network. He's got a lot to do. So let's get into um, our, my conversation uh, from Monday of this week uh, with my friend Rich Eisen of NFL Network. I want to get into your schedule. Yeah. Because we've been talking a little bit, texting back and forth about this bizarre, totally loaded schedule you have now <laughs> with your with your busy world. Just for people who really don't follow you other than maybe the Rich Eisen show and obviously all the stuff you do on Sunday, give the folks an idea of how packed your uh, schedule is this season. Well, what what day of the week you want me to start on, Peter? You let's choose. Do, let's do let's do let's do Monday. Okay, let's do Monday. So Monday um, is um, you know a wake up. You know you like you want me to include the all of it? Is that what you want me? I mean, no, I, I want can, you to include okay. just. I guess we'll just do the professional. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> so uh, I get to work around seven thirty, seven forty five. Work being the. Uh, the show studio that uh, my daily show has been at since um, its inception, born by DirecTV, then passed to AT&T, and then uh, AT&T um, on December 23rd, 2019, but who's counting, uh, called me up to say that uh, the audience network that gave birth to my show in 2014 was shuttering, uh, shutting down, and uh, my show was uh, going to be off the air, and same with Dan Patrick. Um, and, um, so I took ownership of my show on that very day. Um, so I, I, I mentioned all of that to point out how I get to work, uh, in the same spot, um, that it, the show was born out of. 
at 7.45. I do my show from 9 to noon. We have a post-show meeting call. Now I am um, uh, hosting my own podcast network now that I started a couple weeks ago by launching two new podcasts, the Overreaction Monday podcast, born out of a segment that became pretty popular since 2018 on my program, my uh, daily Rich Eisen show. Uh, I shoot that on Monday. Um, and then I come home and I have a couple of hours when I'll say, maybe talk to a good buddy of mine named Peter King on his podcast. Um, and then as soon as I'm done with this, my computer is actually resting on the equipment and the microphone that I'm using right here is what I will connect, uh, to over 600 radio stations to host Monday night football on Westwood one, the radio, uh, show and studio, um, pregame and halftime. So I'll do that and watch the game here in my office. Um, and the interviews that I'll play on it are about 95% of the time done for the Rich Eisen show and have aired there first and now are being aired on Monday night. So that's my relationship with Westwood One and Cumulus, which is also the podcast network for Cumulus putting out my podcast. And then Tuesday, uh, a new podcast with Susie Schuster, who also happens to be my much better half. And Amy Trask, the former, um, you know, lead executive for Al Davis of the Raiders, they're doing a podcast together called What the Football. So after that Tuesday show of me going doing the same thing, 7 a.m. to about noon, uh, I'll be there to just kind of give a look-see of what they're doing for What the Football and then hand things off to the terrific coordinating producer there, Don Bowie, who's a former coordinating producer of my daily show. And then Wednesday, I'll do my show, and Thursday, I'll do my show, and Friday, I'll do my show, rinse and repeat. Saturday, I will um, hop on this computer that I'm Zooming on, and around noon Pacific, there's an NFL game day morning rundown meeting Zoom that lasts about an hour and a half to two hours, depending on how long Michael Irvin wants to opine on something. And then um, four in the morning, invariably, my, my alarm will go off Sunday. And I will host NFL game day morning from 6 a.m. to 10 Pacific, 9 a.m. to 1 Eastern, after which I will watch the early games and then come home and watch the late games and Sunday night football, pass out and do it all again starting Monday. Wow. And you, you also are doing multiple games this year. Yes. Uh, on NFL Network, multiple NFL games. Yes. It used to be you'd only do what, one or two and this year you're doing six, right? Doing six. I couldn't be happier about that. And, you know, Mark Quinzel, who is the lead executive of the International Series games and the NFL Network, um, you know, standalone um, games. Uh, I've known him since the ESPN days. And um, I couldn't, you know, be more thankful and appreciative that he and Brian Rolap and the commissioner, um, you know, entrust me to these games. And I love doing it, Peter. I mean, growing up, in Staten Island, New York, when I realized I couldn't throw a spiral or hit the curve, I would call the games in the streets. You know, that's what I did to start, you know, my career off. Um, so nothing beats uh, a live game because everything I do ordinarily, whether it's game day morning or my show, is either preview something or reacting to something hours before or even a day after. And the fact that I get to be put in a position to actually tell people what's happening in real time for an event that means so much to so many fans whether it's for their uh, personal fandom for a team or their fantasy teams and get to call these games two in London, two in Germany and two domestically. Um, I'm fired up. I couldn't be happier about it. And it's dream come true type stuff to 
basically have third, uh, one third of a television package placed in my lap with everything else that I'm doing. Rich, I want to ask you, because last year, obviously, you went to Munich. Uh, you did the Bucks and Seahawks. Yeah. This year, you're going back. You're going to Frankfurt, if yes. I'm not mistaken. You you, uh-huh. you obviously, you're going to do There's a huge game, potentially, there. Miami and a- Kansas City. Yeah, I'm one lighting of the a candle. Could be one of the games of the year. I know. I'm lighting a candle in my house every night for the health and safety of all the stars of those games, <laughs> of all sticks. You know, but uh, honestly, the first game I'm doing is is uh, Bills and Jaguars, which is you know two division winners from last year. That's a huge football game. Yeah, it uh, it's also fascinating the fact that it's the second consecutive game in London for Jacksonville. Um, so they'll already. I've, we've never seen a team where they have fully adjusted completely yeah. for for an entire week to the uh, time zone and everything else. So we'll see how, how that might actually play into a potential true home advantage, even though Jacksonville, I believe, is technically the road team for that game. Yeah. Uh, then Rich, we stay there for, for Ravens and Titans to wrap up the, the London series. So, Rich, I I have last year going to Munich – unreal really kind of i don't i don't want to say changed me but oh i hear you i remember i talking to roger goodell uh you know one time last year i forget when when it was but i said this that was one of the most impressive i i said i was blown away by the reaction of people in munich and i've been told because i am going to cover that uh, the Chiefs and Dolphins in Frankfurt, I'm told that it'll even be crazier uh, because the fans are significantly more intense mm-hmm. in the Frankfurt area than they are in Munich. But but my my bigger question about this is, I'm starting to think that before you and I, you know, stop doing this for a living, or at least you that there are going to be multiple teams in Europe. I don't know if it's going to be a separate division eight or 10 years down the road. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'm really starting to hear that some people in the NFL, including quite possibly the commissioner, are open to a, uh, I don't know whether it would be an expansion Mm-hmm. Or whether it be moving, I don't, I don't know who's going to move. That's See, the I'll, I'll push back on that a little Go bit, uh, but but start with an agreement that Munich is a top five moment for me um, in my entire career, and um, Tom Brady said it was a top five moment for him. Yeah. Pete Carroll said it was a top five moment for him. You talk to any member of the 2022 Seahawks. Tom Brady told on- me after this game, Rich, this was a this was one of the greatest moments I've had in football. And it you could make the case it was also the best game he the best game he played in his career at, at the end of well, how about this? It's the best he's played in his final year. That game yes. that he yeah. that he was in Munich uh was his most complete game yeah. last year. And he, I don't think he played a better game from there till the end of his uh year and thus career um after munich that was the best last best game he played you could make that case and he was and he threw (laughs) and he um he 
he i think um you know he he, he slipped on uh, uh he he slipped on 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 a pass from Leonard Fournette where he didn't protect Leonard Fournette from throwing an interception in that game. But um, it was it was truly an unbelievable experience and event that I'll never forget. And anybody you talk to, anybody on the Bucks, anybody on the Seahawks from that team, uh, whether they've moved on or still on the yeah. team, they will tell you the same thing. Now, yeah. I don't believe again that the league will ever have a team or teams stationed there. It's just way too difficult a challenge and too significant of a home field advantage for whichever team is welcoming in uh, a a United States based team or has to go visit the East coast of the United States. You'll, you'll never have a European team visit the West coast and very rarely will you have a West coast team visit the European team when, when one team is stationed in a spot what I think we're going to see and what we're, we're close to, I mean, we've got five games in, in Europe. So you're, you're getting close to a third of an NFL schedule there. I believe you will see an international game at some point in our lifetimes once a week. So you'll see an entire international package where a team will show up week one or week two, maybe all the way through to a week 17 game. That's what you'll see. You'll see a European, um, you know, uh, fan base or uh, market get a full complement, a full season of different teams coming or someone like the Jaguars raising their hand saying, we'll go for two. Uh, Maybe another East Coast team seeing the power that we saw of of the the European market, they may raise their hands, but what, what I think you mean as well by that you've been won over is I think anybody that's been involved with the NFL for a long time, that includes me and everyone with NFL network, when the league was beginning to do this with regularity was thinking, why, why are we doing this? Like, what is this going to be about? Like, what are we trying to achieve here? And then when you saw what happened in Munich last year, and you could hear it through your television sets. Like that was my job as the play-by-play announcer of Munich to make sure you heard the Munich fans, 80,000 en masse singing Country Road by John Denver when we came back from the two-minute warning break. That was my job. My producer, the great Mark Teitelman, who's now in the ear of Al Michaels on Thursday nights on Amazon on Prime Video, He's like, you know, we're, we, we've, you should, you know, we're going to come back from break and just say, Hey, the Mercedes hap- the post game show is coming up. And I'm like, fine, I'll do that. But I, I've got to just do this first, we come back from break. I just say, listen to this crowd and you can hear it. I get goosebumps just even thinking about it. And the fact that folks here in the United States know about this is, is one of my most prideful moments as a broadcaster. When I'm, I'm, I'm also equally prideful to say it's because I shut up. I didn't say anything. I wanted to take you and put you in my shoes as yeah. me, Mooch, and Kurt and Irv were blown away. Like, first of all, everybody's singing in unison. Two, it's John Denver. What do these people know from John Denver? You know, like it's yeah. wild. It, and and Rashad White goes over 100 yards for a first down run that essentially sealed the game. Even Brady was saying afterwards, like, I couldn't believe as he's handing off the football. It's to the <laughs> echoes of, of all these Germans singing Country Road. So... Uh, again, it, it you're you're getting to understand the traction of it and the power of it, and I can't wait to do this again in a couple. It's coming right up around the corner, man. Okay, so Rich, I'm I got to get to one last thing before I let you go, but sure. I do want to say one thing. Yeah, the NFL, as you know, 
is an ATM and the NFL produces uh, events and things that make a tremendous amount of money. And I think over the next three or four years, the money is going to begin to flatline a bit mm-hmm. because what's going on in the NFL is that they've set up these contracts, the TV contract, the labor contract with players, so that uh, it's not going to have the massive increases that it did in the last two and three years. So the only point I'm making is if there are voices in Roger Goodell's ear that say to him, hey, listen, what's the next frontier? How are we going to increase this from 23 billion a year to 25 billion or whatever, or to to really get it going? And you know, owners like Jerry Jones are Mm -hmm. going to be saying that. I think the only way is, and I don't mean transfer of teams. I mean, expansion teams in Europe and maybe a division there. Who knows? I don't know. And I am just hearing this from people who say that one owner said to me, I think it's inevitable. He said, I don't know when, but I think it's inevitable. Now, who knows? But all I'm saying is that, Rich, one day I truly believe that you are going to be part of a group that does games regularly in Barcelona and in Munich and in London. It'd be amazing. Yeah. It'd be amazing. And if if they can if they can get around fast enough, maybe they can trade the Jets a quarterback. You know what I mean? When they need it. (laughs) Okay, Barcelona. No, wait a minute. Argentina's trading Messi for Zach Wilson in three one. He's got speed. He's got speed and he knows how to find his teammates. Hey, listen, listen, before we go, I really have to ask you, Mm -hmm. I loved your interview the other day with Deion Sanders. And the reason that I loved it is that it was so familiar and you could tell that you're a pal of Deion's. Uh, I mean, I know Deion pretty well, but in no way would I consider him a pal or anything like that. And I want to know what surprised you about your chat with Dion, who I believe, Rich, right now in sports, yes, that the most amazing thing that's happening in sports is what's happening in Boulder, Colorado, no doubt. and the change in college football with Dion Sanders. No doubt. I mean, um, it's not just any. Uh, coach taking over a one-win team and turning it into a three-win team three games in um, at the juncture of name, image, and likeness and transfer portals redesigning college football. It's one that's a, you know, I think I might have texted this to you. Would you call this his sixth act? Yes. His first act being a Florida State Seminole. Yeah. And then his second act being an Atlanta Falcon, then his third act being an Atlanta Falcon and an Atlanta Brave, and then a Cincinnati Red, where he was a 530 in the World Series. And then a yeah. New York Yankee, right? Right at first. You know, uh he's he's definitely the only coach in college football currently that got into a brawl with Carlton Fisk. You know that. <laughs> you know, and who hit two home runs off Oral Hershiser. Correct. And and hit 533 in a World Series and hosted Saturday Night Live and has been somebody that's been in our magazine covers and television sets since the late 80s. You know, and then and then you could say his his next act was as a television analyst. 
for as long as he was and then his next act and what could be who knows wouldn't this be amazing his most successful act as a as a college coach and so i i love everything about him um you get to be familiar with someone when you travel with them when you walk through airports together when you open up your door to your hotel room and you see a uh, a shoebox of Gucci shoes that he gave you and the rest of the Thursday night football crew in your first season of Thursday night football. Cause he didn't want you to feel left out because he got Gucci's for Steve Mariucci. Cause he didn't like the way Gucci, uh, the way that uh, Steve's shoes looked. And he got, as he said, Gucci's for his Moochie. I mean, you become, <laughs> you become tight with someone like that, with somebody yeah. who your wife invites to your 40th birthday party as a surprise guest who flies in specifically for it, hangs for two hours, and then flies home, as he did. Uh, I could go on and on about how the guy that you're seeing right now is as genuine as the Dion as you saw in any of his previous, as I said, five acts. And the fact that there are still people who still kind of don't get it that what he does to um, to promote, what he does to um, uh, be uh, as as personable as he does appear to be on TV, to be himself, the glasses, the shoes, or whatever, the hats, and whatever, is is all a persona that he knows works, and also takes your mind off of the fact that he's going to beat you mentally and physically as well. You you lose track of of the fact that he told me once when he when he was a player that um when he was with the Niners and the Cowboys he was one of the first people to have his own personal VCR where he would get tapes from the team he would take the personal VCR and with a with a screen attached to it and rest it on the toilet in the bathroom where he has his his ritual uh pre-game night before bath and he would look at film and he would also take his clothes and his uniform. And I think you, this is kind of famous. I don't think I'm telling any tales. He would lay out his uniform all the way down to the socks on, yes, on, yeah. on the floor of the locker room. And he would circle it to envision about what he's going to do in that uniform later in the day. And the fact that he is still that same guy and instilling that same belief in self and swagger and self-confidence, but also preparedness and toughness into a group of men that he has thrown together in the span of just a few months and is doing what he's doing. I don't care if he gets, you know, bounced by Oregon or USC and starts to lose games. I don't feel he's going to go undefeated, but I wouldn't put it past him. It's, it is the greatest story in sports right now. And uh, we're all paying rent in his world, Peter. And I don't mind saying it. Rich, I'm just going to tell you one quick story that you will identify with and you will get a kick out of. When Deion Sanders was a cornerback for the Dallas Cowboys in 1995, um, I had written about him quite a bit because in those days, pre-internet days, pre-19 pre-game show days, pre-days that a defensive player could be as big as a quarterback, okay? Mm -hmm. And Deion Sanders wanted to be that way. Ever since, you know, when he entered the NFL in 1989, that was his goal. That was why he created primetime and all that yeah. stuff. But, but, but anyway, so I am at the time, me and Brent Musburger, yeah. we do the halftime for three and a half minutes uh, in 1995 on Monday Night Football. 
And I had a relationship with Dion to the point that he gave me his pseudonym in his road hotel. This was pre-cell phone. Mm-hmm. And his pseudonym was Red Fox. Yes. And and so and so he, he had a pseudonym. And so if I ever needed him, I would call him. And I called him uh, almost every week on the road. Hey, what's going on? What's happening? All that. But so I asked him when he was going to have some uh, meniscus surgery in 1995. Uh, he was going to get it done by John Uribe, the uh, the the Miami uh, physician and, and surgeon, orthopedist. And so he got hurt. And he had to go to Miami to get this surgery. And I asked him, I said, could I interview you? The surgery was going to be at like seven o'clock in the morning. I said, can I interview you on Monday night football after you get your surgery? Because everybody wants to know how the surgery go, what happened? He says, of course. So what happened is the surgery, because of whatever reason, didn't happen till four in the afternoon. And it wasn't a huge surgery, but he still was coming out of it. And he walked into the room in a total daze at about eight o'clock. We had a drop dead taping mm-hmm. of this at about 830. And he came in maybe 820 and he did it. And he said, I said I was going to do it. And I did it. And he was half comatose, but he did it. And when he left there, he was in a fog and he did whatever. But I always said to him, you know, I'll never forget you doing that. And the one thing about Dion, I think that people don't really understand. Yes, he loves to be famous. He loves all the trappings of it and all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, he does what he says he's going to do. Last thing here, and I'll tell you this story, too. uh, And pardon me if I've told you or this audience this. So, you know, um, before the NFL um hall of fame announcements were made at nfl honors as you know nfl network kind of took it over starting in 2004 the press conference that was always held the day before the super bowl we turned that into a tv show and then after a while i remember showing up and doing the emceeing of that i looked down you were in the front row or the second row whatever and you and the rest of the uh throng of voters and you know Longtime uh, NFL um, media were looking at me like, what are, what are you doing? Like, can we just get this announcement going? What do you mean throwing a commercial break? <laughs> like nobody knew what we were doing, but we attempted to do it and we, we did it. And then it, it became popular. And then we turned it into its own show with no press conference. Um, and so we were in the um, iteration of having it as its own show. Once the announcements were yeah. done, one by one, the players would show up because invariably they're driving around. This was back in the day. They're driving around town knowing that they're up for election. And if they hear that they're not in, they drive to the airport. And if they yeah. hear that they are in, they drive to the convention center to to go to this press conference or now the NFL Network show that I'm hosting. So the year that Dion's going in, it's the iteration of the show that we're hosting and Marshall Falk was also going in and we were genuinely excited to have two of our own on NFL network going in at the same time. Cause we knew they'd be first ballot hall of famers. Marshall was a little bit nervous because you never knew. And that's just his own humility. Dion knew he was going in. We all knew he was going in yeah. first ballot, um, but he refused to come. 
he would not come to NFL Network's own announcement show. And the reason why is because it was in the middle of practice for his youth football team. Would not come. Said he cannot look his kids in the face and say, I'm making an exception for myself during practice for an individual honor. doesn't matter that it's the highest individual honor a player could get. Not going to do it. So they moved the time for him to show up to the very end of the show, sent a car for him, and he agreed to do that as long as his practice was over. And his practice did indeed end. And he showed up with a whistle around his neck in his coaching gear, pissed at the world that he was inconvenienced in the manner that would interrupt his ability to coach and be the guy who he needs to be consistent to be for his kids. I will never forget that. And then, of course, he got there. He got there. He was in a different kind of fog because of that. And he was as Dion as Dion can be. But truly, um, I'm 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 so excited. He's hitting every note perfectly, not just because of the wins, just what he is doing, and um, I love it. And good luck to anybody that tries you know to. You know what, repeat. Rich? It strikes me when I watch him now, and mm-hmm. I watch these games. I think that he's really changing the face of college football. There's no doubt. You know, there's a little Wayne concert the other day, and Dion is there I know. in his cowboy hat and buffalo sweatshirt you know, rocking out. I don't know, maybe some of his players. But it's, are, it's but not said, just that, Peter. It's not just yeah. that. It's just, again, the, his first halftime interview during the TCU game, okay? And by the way, you know, if you're a coach coaching against Dion and you're one of those coaches who doesn't want to do that halftime interview, you love coaching against Dion because don't worry, we don't want to talk to you anyway, you know? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm being straight up. I'm being straight up, Okay. So Dion does the interview. Obviously, Sonny Dykes didn't, but Dion did. And I think it was um, Jenny Taft of Fox who asked him about, you know, the first half. And he mentioned how Travis Hunter missed a couple of passes. And he met, they missed on a couple of passes because of Travis. And he said if Travis had made those catches, the Heisman would already be waiting at the crib for him, meaning his home. And I took that. Honestly, the thing I take out of it is how many coaches did you know? And by the way, the answer is all of them that would never say those words out loud because it's it's making the kids heads too big, taking their eyes off of what's important. No, he's speaking the language of these kids. He's talking exactly what this generation is talking about. Damn straight. I want to win the Heisman. Damn straight. I'm doing this for my team, for myself, for my family, for football. But I'm also doing it to win the Heisman. And he's stoking it he's not like oh gosh i'm gonna fill travis hunter's head with things if i speak this way no no it's truly unique playing out before our eyes at a very very crucial time in a crossroads of college football that he's perfect for he's made for the moment rich eisen i kept you far too long in fact i lied to you because Mm. i said i would only keep you 15 minutes i kept you much longer than that you're a gentleman you're also a scholar Thank you, and sir. I'd like I'd like to say thanks so much for Anytime. entertaining us for a while. Anytime, brother. My thanks to Rich Eisen. And let's just take a break now before we get into the second part of our podcast. We got some interesting things to discuss. And that includes who is Puka Nakua? 
We'll be back right after this. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back on the Peter King Podcast, happy you're able to join me and happy you're able to join my friend Miles Simmons from NBC Sports. And so, Miles, in the back end of the podcast, let's devote a little bit of time. And this is a question that I'm really going to rely on your expertise. You worked for the Rams. You were in their building a lot. You saw the way Les Snead worked. Uh, with the head coach, Sean McVay. You saw the way the scouting team worked, um, you, know, with a, uh, you know, with great trust <coughs> for the scouts there. And I want to bring up the receiver position with you, where Cooper Cup went 69th despite the overall in the draft, despite the fact that uh, he ran a 4 5 8, 40, and now, uh, you know, six years later, you got Puka Nakua from Brigham Young, who ran a four-five something, and it was really downgraded for that. Had a good but not great college career after transferring from Washington. Let me just ask you, what is it about the Rams scouting system, about Les Snead? Maybe it's uh, you know that because they haven't had a lot of high picks, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You, you know, you've got to play with somebody, so you've got to rely on the lower picks. But what is it about the scouting system that allows lower picks to come in so early and to be impact players? I think when you're talking about the receiver position, especially they, they prioritize how do you play, right? It's not necessarily just about numbers and let's need talked a lot when my time there about how you have these little boxes, right? And you want to check the boxes, right? So that there are all kinds of different data points and, you know, whether or not a guy's 40 time is this it's okay. Well, what's his three cone shuttle time, right? What's uh, the way that he separates from different guys in when he's getting in his routes, you know, well, how does he go 
from uh, the, the line of scrimmage to five yards down the field and what's he able to do there. And so that's one aspect of it. But then I think once guys get into the building and they're coached up by Eric Yarber, who's been with the Rams, uh, he's their receivers coach, and he's been with the Rams as long as Sean McVay has been there, then guys have gotten better, you know? So that's one thing where I was hearing Puka Nakua's name basically since he got there in the off-season program from people I still know there and, you know, reporters who were writing about him. And so it's surprising anytime you see a fifth-round pick come in and make this kind of an impact, especially, you know, in the first couple weeks of the season. And if Cooper Cup were healthy, I don't think we'd be seeing this because, look, right. Matthew Stafford will target Cooper Cup. And we understand that. We understand why that is, right? Cooper Cup is an elite receiver when he's healthy and when he's out there on the field. And the connection that those two guys have is second to none. But because Cooper Cup is unavailable, it's kind of like you said, necessity is the mother of innovation, right? So Matthew Stafford had to find different weapons that he was going to be able to rely upon. Tutu Atwell's emergence is almost more surprising to me than that of Puka yeah. Nakua because he's Atwell's got great been hands. there. I mean, but he's been there for the last couple of years and for whatever reason now it has clicked with him and he has been able to get on the field and make plays. But what Naku has done over the first two games of this season is historic. No rookie has ever had as many catches, as many yards as he's had in his first two games. I mean, that's ridiculous. And the fact that he's been able to really pace that offense and be a really good, reliable target for what is now a very healthy Matthew Stafford, I think we can see if you look at him and the way he's throwing dots and dimes and darts this year, he was not doing that last year. They've also fixed the offensive line in front of him. The protection's been good. But the fact that he can go out there and just target Nakua and Nakua's, you know, making him right by making plays, and it does say a lot about the Rams and what they can be this year despite being so young. What do you think it is about Sean McVay that has caused him a bit to change this year, maybe to play a little bit more of a physical brand of football and essentially to say last year was my most vis- most uh, miserable year in football and that is not going to happen again. Give me a view into the mind of, Sean McVay as he tries to make this year a different year than last year. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I, I, the thing that's always struck me about Sean McVay is how much he loves football and how much he loves teaching and how enthusiastic he gets just about describing the game. Right. So, and if that's the way that he would talk to me as a internal reporter, and I guess now I've been external for the last four or five years, whatever it's been, it's now it, that must be magnified that much more when he's talking to players, right? When he's teaching things to them and making sure that they understand what the concepts are. I mean, I, I will remember forever when seeing him in his first couple OTAs, you know, in, in phase three of the offseason program, and he's getting out there and he's like running the routes with the receivers, right? He is really demonstrating how he wants these things to be run. And it's that he's getting out there and he's covering them as like a cornerback. Like that's not 
something you typically see from a coach. It also is because he was 31 yeah. at the time, right? So he's physically a little bit more able to do these things than certain other coaches. But that passion that he has and that love for the game, it you know, from everything that I've heard about it, he needed to kind of renew that. He may, may lose some of that last year just based on the way that they just didn't have any success. And it's not something that they'd ever been through with the Rams since he had been there. So I think it's taking the step back, realizing how much you love the game, realizing that, you know, you can bring in different guys like a Mike LaFleur, who he's familiar with. And obviously Matt LaFleur was the Rams offensive coordinator in 2017 before he went to Tennessee and then on to become the Green Bay Packers head coach and kind of get more of that structure back into what the offense could be. Um, so I, I think all of that plays into it. But yeah, it seems like this could be a really fun year. And it probably reminds some in the organization more of like that 2017 where everything just kind of came together and the Rams burst onto the scene and it was like, Whoa, what's this? This is fun. And it was a very, very yeah. different feel in the building from what it had been in 16 and in previous years, you know, with Jeff Fisher and just the, the thing was not getting where it needed to be. And so I think with all these young players, you know, where it is now, okay, we are teaching them how to be professionals and how to make sure that they can be excellent on a play to play basis that probably fires you up, especially when you go out and you have success against a division rival in Seattle and you kind of give San Francisco a lot that they can handle. And we know how good San Francisco is. I want to ask you two other quick things. One, I'm fascinated by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from the standpoint of, I really thought they were going to be one of the worst teams in football I couldn't run the ball. I was down on Baker Mayfield. And Baker Mayfield comes in. He's really efficient. Um, and, you know, really, and it's just been two games. I get it. But for the first time, he's he's been an efficient uh, player. He's not careless at all, which he has been often in his career. And uh, I, I think that, look, obviously you can make the point that this is not going to be a great division, so somebody's got to win it, and just because they win it, big deal. But <clears throat> you also look at this team, and you look at a team that basically has, right now, if you think about it, Miles, you have a team that has allowed 17 points a game, and I think you don't have to ask the offense to be an explosive offense. If that defense stays healthy they're going to be troublesome. How do you look at Tampa right now? Well, I, I think right now, if you're Todd Bowles, you kind of feel really good about the fact you hired Dave Canales as your offensive coordinator, right? I mean, that is another one of these big moves that were made in terms of coaching staff. And to go out and get a guy like Baker Mayfield, who is you know somewhat familiar with the kind of system that they were going to run because uh, he's played in uh, variations of it, right? In Cleveland and also in Los Angeles last year. It's not exactly the same, but you know, you're kind of in that same um, sort of family, that same sort of realm. That means that Baker Mayfield can come in and be a little bit more comfortable than he might otherwise have been. And now you know, you look at his numbers on third down, which you pointed out in his column, in your column, I should say, and man, he's been excellent. And when you're that good on third down, 
that's going to help you be successful. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where that is such an important play in football that if you can be great on third down, you're going to sustain drives. You're going to be on the field longer. And that just means you're going to score points. So I'm a little surprised at how well Baker Mayfield has played. I won't lie. I need another couple games before I'm going to start feeling like this is something permanent and it's not just a little bit of a mirage, but through two games, if you, if you start out two and oh, man, that helps you later on in the season. Cause there's two more, you don't need to win when you are trying to make a push. And look, I think we all expect that this NFC South is going to be competitive in large part because there's no real clear favorite. So if you bank two wins now, that's two wins you got later on. You know, I'll say one thing about that division. Um, I've been really impressed with the Atlanta Falcons so far. And mostly because they have so many good, interesting weapons. And four of them they haven't used or they've used very, very sparingly so far. And that would be Cordero Patterson, who's had a uh, been hurt. It's not a major injury, but he, he's been hurt a little bit. Jonu Smith, who's really a favorite of of Arthur Smith, and you know, and Drake London and Kyle Pitts. They really have a lot of weapons. And you know, in talking to Arthur Smith, one of the things that he said is he said the one thing we're lucky about is that everybody likes each other, they're on the same page, they understand that some weeks you're probably not going to be the guy, other weeks you might be. So everybody's just got to, you know, understand uh, how this offense is going to work. I was surprised that on Sunday when they beat the Packers that B. John Robinson had 24 touches. And I didn't ever think that B. John Robinson would have 24 touches in a game. And I don't think that really is the design a lot, but Desmond Ritter, a lot of his stuff is checked down. And I don't think the the Falcons mind that, uh, but I do think if they keep getting, uh, there's no way that, in my opinion anyway, that B. John Robinson is going to survive a 17-game grind touching it as much as he did on Sunday that they'll start giving it maybe a little bit more to Tyler Algier. But I'm kind of fascinated with this team. And like I wrote about him in training camp, playing positionless football with a lot of really different offensive weapons. Who do you give the edge to right now? Tampa Bay or Atlanta in the South? Oh, man. Um <laughs> Uh, Atlanta, I I'd guess. probably give the edge. I'd probably give the oh. edge to Tampa right now, honestly, really? because in my opinion, I think they got a better defense, but you know, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. That's, I mean, uh, that's what I was thinking too. And they're, they're more experienced, you know, I mean, we've, we've seen good things in the past from some of those skill players. You know, we're still watching the development of Bijan Robinson. I, I think if you're Desmond Ritter, you have to get the ball more inter- to more intermediate to deep throws, especially if you've got those kinds of guys, like you mentioned, you know, your Drake London's your Kyle Pitts of the world. Uh, like the, the best throw he had Desmond Ritter in week one was the throw all the way down the field 
to um yeah. to, to Kyle Pitts, right? So that's one where you're like, okay, I get it. You know, you see something there, but you need to see more of that consistently. And I guess that if Ritter can kind of take those steps as he continues to get more starts, more experience, then that might let me give the edge to the Falcons. But yeah, I I, I don't know. The Saints is the, the answer I I might give you. <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, look, we could probably have a much different discussion next m- next Monday, next Tuesday, next Wednesday, based on what we see in week three. And um, I just thought it'd be interesting to bat around some unexpected things this week that uh, not just players, but I just, yeah, I'm still surprised that I think the top three teams in football, right, are, are now, now uh, are all in the NFC. So uh, we'll see what the future brings. But anyway, Miles, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks to Rich Eisen of NFL Network for his help. And uh, thanks to you for listening, experiencing, watching, however you experience us at the Peter King Podcast. We really appreciate you being along for the ride. And we'll be back again with more football talk next week. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.